Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Tyler Gillum. Tyler is currently an assistant coach and health and wellness coordinator at South Mountain Community College in Phoenix, Arizona. In the summertime, he is the head coach for the Savannah Bananas, who, is, who are a collegiate summer baseball team. He's also been in the Coastal Plains League, Texas Collegiate Summer League, and Cape Cod League. He's extremely active in the ABCA clinics, is always around the country speaking. I'm giving up his time to to really help grow the game. He's active on social media as well, and it's going to be a really cool episode, I think, for everyone out there listening because um, we're going to be talking about infield play, how to coach third base, strength training, base running. I mean, he really breaks it down for us in those specific categories. Um, Tyler is like an infield guru. He's someone who I've, I've been following for a while now on social media, seen a lot of his content. We actually met at uh, TPI when I went a few years ago. And so it's been awesome to kind of stay in touch with him and, and see him continue to just put out information just solely just to help players more than anything and coaches. So I'm really excited about this one. I think everyone out there uh, listening is going to be be able to take something away from this as well. So great episode, um, great guest, and I think everyone here will enjoy it. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, here is Tyler Gillum. All right, we are now live with Tyler Gillum. Tyler, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, man. It's it's great to catch up with you again, man. It's been a couple years since we knocked it out. TPI, you've done a phenomenal job with this podcast. I followed. You've had some awesome guys on here, so uh, I'm pumped to talk shop with you. I appreciate it, man. And I, uh, you know, I, I remember us meeting again. And I can, I think that was 2017, actually. I think or 2018. I can't even remember, but. You know, I've been following you and kind of your journey, especially now getting to summer baseball, coaching the, the bananas. I mean, let's actually, I, I'm actually kind of curious, start out there. Like, you coach the summer baseball team. I know you've coached in several different leagues now. Uh, I think you said you've coached summer baseball for nine years, and you're not very, not that old at, as, at all. Yep. So what, like, what draw, uh, drew you to go to the bananas in the first place? Because at that time, they weren't this kind of, uh, phenom of a team or organization in summer baseball. Right, right. So the Bananas started in the summer of 2016. That was their first summer. I had a buddy there. Um, he was the head coach, Sean West. And he, I met him in Texas. I was working some DeMarini Top 96 camps back in the day. I met him through there, and we just stayed connected. And he took the head job. He was there in 2016 and 17 did a phenomenal job uh, the first year they ended up winning the coastal plain league championship which is crazy first year of the team and they end up winning and he kind of got the whole thing started especially with videos there's a bunch of youtube videos of him like reenacting movies and doing the sandlot and a lot of other things so i was following him and i knew what the bananas were all about in 2016 and 17 so i knew a little bit about it in 2018 is the summer I joined the Bananas and ended up happening. Sean had a kid and couldn't go back that summer, so he gave me a call. In 2017, I was coaching in the Cape with the Whitey Red Sox with Scott Pickler, and 
uh, you know, after that summer, my plan was to go back to the Cape and do that again. It was a phenomenal experience. And I wasn't really looking for a head job. I was wanting to just continue, you know, surrounding myself with great players. And the Cape's got some of the best in the country and great coaches. And, man, I'm, I've made so many connections in the Cape. So what ended up happening is in after, let's see here, it was Sep 2017, the sun, let's see here, September of 2017, Sean calls me and says, Gillum, hey, man, I'm, I, I can't go back to the bananas. I really want to go back. You know, I, I'm having a kid and it's just not going to work out. But they're looking for somebody that can speak in front of 5,000 people, think outside the box, bring some energy. So uh, I told them, you know, I think you're the guy for that. And, you know, so if you're interested, I'll connect you with Jesse Cole, the owner, and um, see if it's a fit. And I said, yeah, man, you know, um, just give me some more details. Let's talk about it. Give me on the phone with Jesse and let's, you know, let's talk about that. And what ended up happening was me and Jesse got on the phone. I did some research on Jesse and I found out like we had a lot of the same, same thought processes when it came to learning and growing. He reads a lot of books. He listens to a lot of podcasts. He's, he's got his own book right now. We, we just had a lot of same thoughts. And, and what I noticed is what he was trying to do is create the best fan baseball experience in baseball. And what I wanted to do is create the best development area uh, team in, in baseball. I want every coach in America to say, hey, I want my players to play um, in Savannah in the summer because those guys go there and develop. They have an awesome experience. And then they come back to school and they're better players. And that's what I want to create. I want to create a place where players love to play summer baseball. We win, we develop, create relationships for a lifetime. So me and Jesse got to talk and we basically looked at combining those two things is like, how can we have the best fan experience possible? And how can we have the best player experience possible? And um, that's kind of how we've transitioned to, you know, really 2012. Here we are and we've Done, you know, we're on the national stage, really world stage in a lot of a lot of ways since we did uh, the kilt game, since we played a baseball game in kilts. There's people from Europe come over and Ireland come over and watch that game, which is nuts. So that's kind of what we're trying to be, man. The world famous Savannah Bananas and and change baseball for the better from an experience standpoint and develop baseball players. So. Man, I love it there. It's a, it's an awesome, unique place, and uh, I feel fortunate to be a small part of it. That's very, very, very cool. And for those who don't know, I'd really recommend like going on the internet and Googling the Savannah Bananas because I actually did that a couple of days ago just getting ready for this podcast. And, I mean, Tyler, you're out there uh, coaching third base um, a few games wearing boots. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's like what did you say? Like your owner, his, one of his phrases is, whatever's normal, do the opposite. Yeah, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. That was one of the first, my first, you know, representations of who Jesse Cole is. As I saw that quote, is is if it's normal, do the exact opposite, and that's what we do a lot with the bananas. But it doesn't affect the baseball side of things. A lot of people think some of the things that we do affects the baseball side, and, and it doesn't. In, in in my opinion, it actually gives players more freedom. They have more fun, and then they play better. There's actually. Um, Georgia Southern professor actually did a research study on 
Our, so our owner used to say all the time, if you come play for the bananas, you'll play better as a player. And he used to say it all the time, but we didn't have statistics behind that to actually prove that. So this professor did a, a research analysis, basically, and then proved that if you're wearing a bananas for, uh, uniform, you play better. Uh, so that's on YouTube. There's like a 20 minute YouTube podcast video of, of him explaining those statistics of that guys actually play better with us in the summer. So anyway, it's, yeah, if it's normal, do the exact opposite. So we've got a dancing first base coach. I wear boots every home game. We've wore kilts in a baseball game. Uh, we're actually two and zero in kilts, by the way, uh, <laughs> undefeated in kilts, which is unbelievable um, that we've won in kilts, but it's not, once you wear the kilt, it's not as bad as you think it would be. You know, it's like a lot of guys are like, man, I feel like freer in this thing, you know? So the other thing is I told Jesse is like, whatever entertainment stuff you want to pull off, like I can pull it off. Like I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way to pull it off as long as our guys are safe and not going to get injured and we can compete in the thing. Like, you know, cause if we're running out there and we can't compete and the guys aren't safe, then, then, I, you know, I'm out. And those were really my only two things for him. And like, we've stuck to that plan. So like with the kilts, the guys, we, we ordered sliding pants for all the guys. We ordered tights for all the guys. They had socks on and then they had their BP shorts underneath the kilt. So the guys were safe. I mean, I think last, I, I think we've stolen in those two games, I think we've stolen like eight bases in a kilt. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we've got the green light special base running system mixed into kilts. We still got stolen bases. So it, it's, it's fun, but you know, it's a unique experience and it's cool. Yeah, that, that sounds really, really cool. I'd love to catch a game sometime. I know you're very active in the coaching community. I know you're really involved in ABCA and some other uh, coaching clinics as well. Has it always been like that where you've always wanted to be involved and take an active role in, in developing yourself as a, as a better coach? Yeah, I think that just stems from me as a player, too. I wasn't overly talented, so I had to do everything I possibly could to figure out how to get in the lineup, and I had to work the hardest, show up early, stay later, get more hacks in, get more ground balls in. Like, that's something that's always kind of being embedded in me because, like, I just it's, – it's something that I've always had. So once I started coaching, it was the same way. How can I make the most connections, and where can I learn the most? So in 2010, that was my first ABCA I was coaching at East Central University in Aid, Oklahoma. Uh, I was 23 years old and had no idea what the ABCA was. And our head guy took us down to Dallas for that convention. And I walked in and I was like, man, this is baseball heaven. This is unbelievable. And got to walk in. I'm an infield guy. You know, that's my niche. It's my love. And I walked in to the first speaker is Marty Lee's giving a talk on infield play. And I thought I, I knew some things about infill play, and I was blown away. And I was like, man, I don't know anything. I, I got to get my systems together better. I've got to get my thoughts together. I've got to get organization of my catch play better and all of those things. So he was, he was huge for me at that, you know, at that age. And, you know, obviously diving into all the other videos and, and going to watch a lot of the other speakers, it, that really – opened my eyes of like, man, are these, is there other areas that I can learn from, you know? And then, you know, Twitter came on the scene and then barnstorming clinics. And every year I try to do four or five different types of clinics that I'm not speaking at, just uh, clinics that I can go and listen and set in and, and, and hang out with somebody and, 
you know, so I've, you know, hung out at Cressy's performance for two days. I've been up to driveline for two days. I've, I think I've went to like eight barnstorming clinics when Sheets was running the barnstorming clinics. And anytime me and you met at TPI, you know, I do some type of strength and conditioning certification every year. I got functional range conditioning certified this past fall in Austin, Texas at the Onnit facility there. So that's something I always just, just from a personal growth standpoint, I've got to do one or two things every single year. And then I've started my doctorate degree in education. Um, it has a, it's a doctorate of education with an emphasis in sports coaching. So I've really challenged myself in that, in that piece of like, I probably don't have the time to do that, but I'm like, I'm just, I, I'm pushing myself to the edge on that. It's going slowly. Uh, you know, it's, it's one class at a time for sure. And, uh, I've got my wife who's way smarter than me pressing the button saying, Hey, you need to do that paper. Hey, you need to do that paper. So she's my tutor most of the time on that. So that's kind of just been me always, man. I want to be a master coach. I want to learn what everybody else is learning and, and see how I can give that to players because it was a coach that impacted my life that if he didn't impact my life, I, we wouldn't be talking. I wouldn't be coaching baseball. I'd probably be in jail somewhere. So, you know, I just want to continue learning. I love baseball, I love success and performance and want to give give back to other people and hopefully I can have an impact on others like my high school coach had an impact on me so that's kind of the long-winded story of yeah I, I love the growth piece of it what what did your high school coach do that made such a big impact on you uh, was a role model more than anything he he's he's actually about if, if this spring didn't get canceled he was about to become the the, the national he's about to break the national record for wins in high school he's stuck at 2107 wins right now yeah so in oklahoma you have a fall season and you have a spring season so for the small schools in oklahoma you don't have football in a lot of schools so there's a fall state tournament we play 30 games so you have two seasons so he's been able to gain a lot of more ga- uh, games, you know, than other coaches around the country because he's had fall and spring. But just from the standpoint of, man, he's super disciplined. He is the guy that shows up every day and works. Like, he's going to outwork you every day, and he's going to tell you, too. He's like, boys, you better keep up with me. I don't care if I'm 65 years old. We were just highly disciplined. We had to be clean shaved. Everything was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uniform had to be clean. You know, we we had to care about each other. There was a right way to play the game and play hard. If you didn't do that, there was consequences. It didn't matter if you were the best player on the team. He was going to set your butt on the, on the bench if you weren't doing the right things, if you weren't getting good grades. Uh, he really just created a structure for my life of, Hey, this is how you're supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to go about your business. This is how you do some things in life to be successful. And the other thing is he's had opportunities to go coach college baseball and do some other things, but he's been at Latta High School for over 40 years. And man, I I think he just, he, he, be where your feet are. That quote of be where your feet are is exactly who he is. And he's really humbled. I talked to some guys about getting him on a podcast together, me and him, and, and to kind of talk through some things. Like he, he probably doesn't even know what a podcast is. Like <laughs> he's he's so he's really tunnel visioned into like he's going to go work on the field every day. He's going to hit fungo. 
He's going to work. He's a pitching guy. He's going to work with his guys in the bullpen. He's going to teach history. He's going to love his family. He's going to love his country. Um, he's got kids that have uh, served in the military. He's going to take care of everybody. And like, man, he's just been through, been there through me, been there for me through some hard times and really just taught me how to structure my life to, you know, be successful, to work hard, to do the right thing. So that's what he's done for me. So taking some of his, like some of the stuff he was doing and implementing, right, making you guys say yes, sir, no, sir, clean shaving. Do you take any of that stuff and I apply it to your players? Uh, I don't here. And the reason why is I'm not the head coach. I'm, I'm the assistant coach here at South Mountain. But I think college is a little bit different. I think you're, you're grabbing players from all over the country, from different programs with different belief systems, from different areas of the country. And so I see it being a little bit more laxed in that scenario. We're also in Arizona, um, which is a little bit West Coast, you know, so there's a little bit more freedom on the West Coast than you would probably see within Oklahoma and Texas coaches being a little bit more, um, having a little bit more rules and expectations like clean shaving, yes sir, no sir, those types of things. And I think just society's changed a little bit over time, you know. You know, he would he would give us a little bit of freedom. Like if we won 10 games in a row, you know, he'd be like, he'd give us a little bit of freedom, you know. So he'd make some incentives where we could grow our hair out or, but he, he you know, he'd, he'd give us crap for it and stuff like that. He'd mess with us if, if our hair was too long and not clean shaven. But it was, it was just more of like, I just think it's different in college. I'm not the head coach, so I don't, I don't run it that way. I think society's different today. So I, I like giving a little bit more freedom, but being in small town, Oklahoma, it fit that culture. It fit that niche. It fit who we were. It fit all of our families. Like that wasn't like, that wasn't a big deal growing up. Like you got to be clean shave. Everything's got to be like everybody. If you talk to a bunch of little kids in Oklahoma and Texas, majority of them, if they're country kids, they're going to be saying yes, sir, no, yeah. sir, since yeah. they came out of the womb. So that was, that's part of the culture. So I think it's different. Uh, depending on where you are throughout the country, I really do. So you're you've been at South Mountain now for a few years. Uh, like, what are your your roles for the baseball team there? Because I know you you have a full time job, right? You're the health and wellness program coordinator as well. Now, I guess my next question should be after what your roles are is how do you have time to do all this stuff? But first, I guess we'll just get to like, what are your roles with the baseball team? So in 2012 or fall of 2011, when I moved to South Mountain, there was no full-time job associated with it. There was like a thousand dollars stipend, um, but I wanted to be in Phoenix because I thought it was the best place that I could grow and network. Those two things are something I've always stuck with. Like, where's the if I if I take another job somewhere, can this place grow me? Can it get me out of my comfort zone? Can it stretch me knowledge-wise? Can I have some freedom to learn? in this area if I take a job, but also can I network? Can I be around some people that are going to elevate me on, you know, and connect me maybe to somebody else that's a lot smarter than I am. So those two things are something I've always looked at and being in Phoenix, Arizona was something I thought could really elevate me back then. Um, you know, I was 24, 25 years old and I moved there no full-time job. I just knew I wanted to be there and I was going to make ends meet. I was just going to figure it out. So Coach Easton was awesome enough to give me a job, and um, he said, hey, let me talk to the maintenance crew on campus. 
I think they've got a part-time job available. Let me see if I can get you on there. So I took that job to make ends meet. I just finished my master's degree at East Central, and I took a fill maintenance job for $9 an hour. Um, at that time, I could work 40 hours a week, but it was no benefits. And I worked from 4, th- my, I had to clock in at 4.30 a.m. and then I worked till 1.30. I would clock out, go take a shower, and then I'd go to the field and, and practice from two to six. And then I'd get home and pretty much fall asleep eating dinner most of the time. But um, the next year I got into the classroom, started teaching. Uh, Healthful Living was the first class that I taught taught nutrition after that, taught some exercise science classes after that. And what I noticed was we had a coordinator of health and wellness on campus who hired me, but he was about to retire. And so I noticed about three years before he was going to retire that he was going to retire. So I said, okay, he's going to retire. I'm going to prepare myself to interview for that health and court, uh, health and wellness coordinator job. So I basically took all of his responsibilities that I possibly could and did those for free. So I was, I was running the entire program. I developed our exercise science program in those three years. So we have an exercise science and personal training degree on campus. At that time, we didn't offer 10 classes to get your AA degree. So I had some students taking some classes at South for the personal training degree and they would have to transfer to some of our sister colleges to graduate. So, you know, I saw this and I said, you know what, I'm gonna develop this program. So I developed the rest of the program, these 10 courses, and I taught some of them for free because I was trying to get some of these students through the program. And basically in that three years, I just did a lot of work for not very much money. And then when it came time to interview for that job, you know, it was kind of, I walked in there and was like, you know, it's like, man, Tyler's been doing this job already for three years. He developed this program. Like before we actually had a program, I had kids graduate from the program. It actually, the program went on moratorium, which means it like sunsets. So nobody can graduate from it because we didn't offer 10 courses. So in that time that it went to moratorium, when it sunsetted, I graduated some students And then when I went to interview um, for the job, you know, everybody that was sitting on the the board of like hiring for the job was like, man, you've already had these kids through the program and you haven't, we don't even actually have the program right now. So basically I got the job and then what I did was developed, I had to do paperwork to get the program back going again. So I had to take it out of moratorium and say, hey, here we go again. And we offer all the classes for this this program. So that's what we did. Uh, I'm just fortunate to be around some awesome people at South Mountain that gave me some opportunities, maybe when I wasn't ready for them and threw me into the fire and said, hey, teach this course, teach this course, teach this course. Here's some responsibility. Take it and run with it. And that's what I tried to do. And it got me into the classroom. And now I'm full-time faculty on campus. It's a great job. Majority of uh, instructors that get these jobs, they don't leave. They stay here forever. I'm just fortunate enough that I can do both. Um, but it is very time consuming. Usually, you know, majority of the time, my schedule is wake up at five, okay, roughly around that five o'clock time slot, wake up at five, get 
all the organization work that I need to get done within exercise science done before eight o'clock. And then um, 8.30, I teach my first class. 10.30, I teach my second class. I usually do work emails, any projects that I need to do from 11 to 1, and then practice. Excuse me, practice will start at 1, and then we'll go to 6. And then the other thing is I've got 25 adjunct instructors that work underneath me that are awesome, and I try to delegate as much, uh, you know, as much, uh, responsibility to them as, as possible. I'm definitely not a micromanager. Uh, I try to hire people that are a lot smarter than me and let them run with their courses. And just you know, I'm I'm there to help help with anything that they need. If they need resources, if you know, if they if they need technology, whatever it is, I'm there to kind of help them uh, along the way. But also, I work with uh, four other coaches on our coaching staff that are phenomenal and if there's days where i have to be at a meeting which doesn't happen too often but if i have to be like at an exercise science meeting they can run the show and and run with it i'm you know daniel padilla is one coach jimmy turk todd easton and kevin soiny and you know they kill it they're awesome and they work their butt off and i'm fortunate to go to work with those guys every day so really to be able to do all of it i manage our fitness center I usually teach five classes each semester. I try to evaluate and work with 25 adjunct instructors, so I got to do all the hiring for those guys and evaluate them. And yeah, and then we coach some baseball too. So I usually all my exercise science stuff happens in the mornings, really before one o'clock, and then baseball majority of the time happens after that, from like one to six o'clock. That's great, man. You're a, you're a freaking machine. I'll tell you that. That I love it. And it kind of reminds me, like, I, I coached high school baseball. Coffee. Yeah, Coffee. there you go. I coached high school baseball for a couple years, and I was kind of blown away at how, you know, majority of high school coaches, you know, they teach, too. So they're getting up at 530 in the morning. They're teaching all day, and then they're going to practice for a few hours. And, and you know, I've only ever done baseball. I've never done anything else. So just, like, it really – I just I, – I found like myself just really having a lot more – understanding of what they were going through and just respect honestly just because you could you know they're doing it because they love to do it they just want to help it's not because they need to the same thing with you you don't need to like you already have your full-time job you don't need to you know uh, coach more people or more players and but you do because you know you were saying off the air you want to make an impact on a million people um, which is awesome. It's that's really really cool earlier you were saying you know, you're by trade an infield guy like take me through like what's a typical day like for your infielders okay so we get to practice we stretch as a team um from there we'll go into catch play uh catch play is one of the i would say the hardest thing that we do at practice one of the hardest things that we do at practice also one of the most beneficial things that we do at practice so when we're scheduling for practice in general as coaches i think it's highly important that our stretch routine is really solid it's really good we're really impacting the mobility stability flexibility of our athletes but also that catch play is something those two things we do every day we stretch every day and we play catch every day like uh, those are two staples of what our practices look like so i think it's highly important that development uh, happens in those so i look at our catch play as in if we don't do anything else today and we only play catch, they're going to be prepared if we have a game tomorrow. So 
within that catch play, and I've talked on this quite a bit within the uh, infield world area, is what I want to try to do within that catch play is take care of every game-like play possible in catch play. So catch play is usually going to last 12 to 15 minutes for our guys. What we'll do is throw from every arm angle. We'll throw from two-step patterns to we'll throw four-step patterns because majority of the time what you see from infielders is after they catch a ground ball, majority of step patterns are going to be a two-step pattern or that's also known as one shuffle or a four-step pattern, which is also two shuffles, okay? However your terminology is, however you want to work through that. So it's either catch, right, left, throw or catch, right, left, right, left, throw or shuffle, shuffle, however you want, however you look at that. So we really try to ingrain those foot patterns a lot. We'll throw off of our right foot. We'll throw off of our left foot, like on the run plays and spin plays. You'll see that a lot. We will throw from all all different arm angles from what I call our, our clockwork. So if you look at a clock, the arms on a clock from 12 o'clock all the way down to 4 o'clock are the different arm angles that infielders will have. So over the top would be 12 o'clock, and then you're going to go from 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock lower. And depending on what type of ground ball that you catch on the infield and your body position is going to dictate what arm angle that you need to throw at. So a lot of times, you know, I think the myth of just throwing over the top and throwing at one arm angle is, is, is not benefiting our infielders from a development standpoint. You know, so like when you catch a slow roller, let's say you're the shortstop and you're going to go catch a backhand slow roller in the sixth hole, you're having to come get that ball and throw across your body. Usually that's going to be at like a three or four o'clock time slot, right? Or a slow roller from the third baseman and he's having to come get it right, and throw across his body. That's going to be somewhere around probably that two or three o'clock time slot it depends on it depends on the ground ball the speed of the ground ball the speed of the runner but all of those arm angles are used so my question to a lot of guys uh, a lot of players i'm talking infield is if you get to the game and you're hit a slow roller which is going to happen and you're the game asks you your body asks you to throw from the four o'clock time slot and you haven't worked on it in catch play, how prepared are you to make that throw and be accurate? You're not. So my goal in catch play is to use all of those arm angles multiple times so we're prepared for the game. So when our guys get to the game, it's like, oh, okay, I've I've already made 10 throws from each of these time slots. I'm good. I've thrown off my right foot. I've thrown off my left foot. I've done a two-step pattern. I've done a four-step pattern. All of those necessary things that the game asks us to do, we've taken care of in catch play. And if anybody wants to email me or, uh, you know, I I can email you too and and send you my whole infield PowerPoint with all the information in it. I've got I've got the uh, it's on YouTube as well. Uh, The the video on YouTube is just okay, But I've put together uh, what it looks like within our catch play. And then I've got it all mapped out on our on my PowerPoint that I can send to anybody that wants it. But. Yeah, a lot of our guys, they'll tell you like after catch play, they're like, man, they're tired. Is there a certain amount of reps that you have them do for each arm slot? Yeah, so when they back up, like if 
if you can we share the screen on this podcast like um, on this on the sky can you share screen I'm not sure. We can always put it back in. We can record that after too and put it in. Okay. So I'll share I'll share that, but it's basically step by step. There's I've got them working in all the way to out, and then they'll work back in. Just kind of some staples, like two to three days a week. I give them freedom. Two to three days a week, we'll play long toss. We'll work on we'll work on throwing one hops and throwing short hops will work on the one thing that's a staple that I think is different than everybody else's catch play is what we call no wasted reps. And that means every time we catch the baseball, we do something with it. Hmm. So if if me and you are playing catch and you throw me a ball, I'm either going to act like I'm going to turn a double play. So I'm going to transition. Okay. I'm going to act like I'm going to stretch and catch maybe if I'm a first baseman. Okay. I might act like I'm going to catch and tag for like a a middle infielder or even, you know, like a still play at third or a pick play at first base. So every time I catch, I'm going to do something with it. I'm not just going to catch just to catch. I'm going to make sure I get a rep in. And then what we talk about is think about if you're a middle infielder, you're a second baseman. And let's say we play catch and there's 50 balls thrown during catch play. And every time you catch the ball, you transition it like you're going to turn a double play. And over 100 days of you doing that, you've accumulated what? How many, what is that, 5,000 reps of turning a double play? Is that the right math? I think it's 5,000. 100 days, 50 reps. Yeah, 5,000. 5,000 reps of turning a double play versus a guy that when he catches it, he just stands there and just catches it. He doesn't transition the baseball. You know, so I think those rep schemes are really important. I'm big on the compound effect. I'm built. I'm big on like the 10,000 hour rule. I believe in big pieces of it. I definitely think the intent is huge to increase skill. You know, reps are the mother of skill accusation. So I try to create as many reps as possible within our catch play to catch and throw from different arm angles. So I can send that out. It's a little easier to send out and explain it that way, the step-by-step process. Yeah, I think the listeners would love that. And I I really like how you just explain that, how, you know, you don't want a wasted rep. You know, you want them all simulating the game scenario when they after they do catch the ball. That's awesome. Um, being um, in Cincinnati, I remember, you know, years ago we had Brandon Phillips here, and he was, you know, a great second baseman yeah. defensively. He'd make the routine plays, but, like, he would make those just incredible plays as well. And some might, you know, he maybe he was flashy at times or whatnot, but I know for a fact some of those plays, like, he's not making unless he is a little bit flashy. My question that I'm getting to is one of the things he would say is he would practice a lot of that stuff. Yep. Um, now, he could make all the routine plays, too, but he would practice a lot of those crazy plays. What's, what's your take on your guys practicing that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, I'm all, I'm all in on that. This, I'll tell you a story. So um, one of my former buddies got played junior college baseball with was a bullpen catcher uh, for the Blue Jays. And I got to get on field and watch the Blue Jays hit BP. This was back in, like, 2016, 2017, that, that timeline. And I got to watch – I was on field three times, and I got to watch Tulowitzki take ground balls in pregame all three days. Wow. So I, w- I watched his entire routine of what it looked like in pregame uh, or in BP, 
And afterwards, I was my buddy's name is Josue Pele. Now I was asking Pele, I was like, "What do you think? Like, what makes Tulo so good?" I watched him do his. I watched him do his pregame routine all three days. It was, it, you could tell it, it was mapped out. He knew exactly what he was going to do. What do you got on that? And he said, Hey, you know, that play that Tulo makes in the six hole where he throws across his body and it's on web gyms every week. And everybody thinks it's the most awesome play ever. He said, he makes that play twice before every game. So if you think of 162 games, and he's taking BP before every single game, and he goes out. You know, there's probably days he takes off, but majority of the time, let's say let's say he goes 150 games and he does his B, uh, BP routine, his infield BP routine. He's gonna make that play 300 times, and that's in one year. And at that time, you know, he was like a 15-year vet or something like that, veteran. You know, so you think about it, all the times he's made that play. And so what Tulo actually did was he took 20 to 25 ground balls that were specific to the, it was like 20 to 25 ground balls that were specific to the game. They were going to accomplish every single play that needed to be accomplished that he was going to be asked of in a game. And so I've developed that for our guys. We do the same thing. We turn double plays. We throw across the field. I stole um, NBP, an, another thing that we do that I think makes it a lot, uh, not just from a rep standpoint, from a, a speed standpoint, is NBP a lot of times I'll stand right behind second base and I'll put all my infielders on a stopwatch. This is in our BP pregame infield. And I will do a stopwatch of exactly – uh, four, three runners. So every time a phone goes hit, I'll start the stopwatch. Every time they throw it to first, I'll stop it. And they get all of that information before the game happens. We'll do it in practice too, but we do it before the game all the time. So I think that's important, but the reps, I'm, I'm all in on all of those reps. The more routines you can give your guys and just kind of put those routines in place, that's going to help your guys from a skill accusation standpoint. So, yeah, the Tula Whiskey thing's always stuck with me, and I've implemented that with our guys during BP. Yeah, I definitely agree that the you know the reps and and making those count, making them game like, and is just so huge. And I just think the skill acquisition, like you were saying, especially from the defensive side. I mean, just the more reps, honestly, um, the better. As long as you're you know not just going through the motion right now being that you know we are in a unique time and, and a lot of guys are at home one of the things Josh Harrison uh, used to tell me a lot who's you know been an infielder in the big leagues for a while is you know he would even start out of the offseason playing a lot of wall ball um, yep. so right now do you tell your guys and do you recommend other players out there like hey like wall ball is going to be you can still get a lot better and develop just by practice doing different variations off of a wall with the ball yeah absolutely wall ball is all I mean Wall ball is always something that we should always be doing. It's always something that we can do. We can do it inside. We can do it outside on the outside of our house. We can we can do it in so many areas. And we don't we don't need somebody hitting fungos to us. And we can get so many reps and ingrain those movement patterns with those reps. You know, so you don't need a buddy. You know, the the joke um, that I always that I always say is if you remember those like twenty dollar pitchbacks you can get at walmart right they have the net on them you can throw a ball in it and it'll come back to you oh yeah yeah my parents bought me one when i was younger 
in some of my infill presentations that I give when I go talk to some high, at high school clinics or ABCA or whatever, I, I usually post that throwback, a picture of that, and I put best friend because he was my best friend in a lot of ways. That It was in my room. Uh, that pitchback net was in my room, and I would just play with that guy all the time. I'd just throw balls back and forth all the time off that net inside my house, inside my room. So, I, I, again, it's a, it's a reps thing. We can all use it. It's beneficial, and that should be a no-brainer. Another story I've got with that, when I was growing up, flat of high school, in fifth and sixth grade, when we'd go to, uh, when we'd go to recess, all of us kids would all go play wall ball. That was like we had recess for 20 minutes, and we all played wall ball. It was competitive. I mean, like we're hitting each other hard. Like there's pegs. Like it, it, it's aggressive. But we did that growing up, and then um, uh, we ended up having a kid get hurt, and then they shut wall ball down. So I always joke with some of uh, the younger Latta players back at my high school. It's like, hey, man, you infielders aren't as good as us because they shut that down. You couldn't play wall ball anymore. So it, it, it decreased your development your area to develop because you guys couldn't play wall ball in recess. I thought that was huge growing up. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, counting hops? I've heard that before. I'm not an infield guy, so I've been doing a lot more research, uh, just getting ready for this podcast. But here I've heard it a couple different videos of, of guys talking about, you know, counting hops. Yeah. So it's part of our drill package that we do. One drill that I highly recommend our players love it the most. I call it our hop sequence drill. Within our hop sequence drill, what we do is we have, let's see here, five different areas in our hop sequence drill. The first one, and to give you kind of a, a visual, what I do is I put my infielders, uh, we have two fungo guys for, for infielders at practice and individual defense. So I'll have a group at first base and a group at third base. I just line them up with the bag. So that's the distance that they're from us. We are hitting fungos from home plate. And so the first round of the hop sequence drill is they have to catch a long hop. Okay, so I'll hit, I'll hit a ball, I'll chop it into the ground, and the players have to move their feet to catch the long hop. The second round is they have to catch a short hop. So I'll chop it into the ground, they'll have to move their feet in order to catch the short hop. So it really makes them focus on what the ball is doing and how the ball is bouncing and how to move their feet all right, basically to dance with that baseball to catch the proper hop. Okay, so those are the first two rounds. The third round is I make them catch the second hop. So I just tell them, I don't care if it's long hop, I don't care if it's the short hop, you have to catch the second hop. So they're counting hops, they're starting to count hops in that third round. So I'll chop the ball on the ground and they have to catch it by the second hop. And then fourth round is they have to catch the third hop. All right, usually the third hop makes them drop step a little bit more, all right, which is one of the, so the fourth round is going to be the third hop. So they have to catch the third hop. Usually they have to drop step in that one because I hit a little bit harder. And usually drop stepping is one of the tougher things. I think transitioning from high school to college baseball, a lot of infielders that come in out of high school, they haven't had to drop step as much because balls haven't had, been hit as hard. So once you get to college, balls are hit harder, you have to drop step more, especially if you're playing the corner infield spots. Okay, so catching the third hop teaches a lot of 
drop stepping in that scenario, depending on how hard the fungo is. And then the last piece of that, we'll move our guys back to regular position and we'll have them count the hops. And so they can, it doesn't matter then how many, if they catch short hop, long hop, or how many uh, hops they catch, we just make them uh, count the hops before they catch. Okay, so something that we do that I think is very beneficial from a learning standpoint is let's say you're hitting ground balls to five guys in a line. Okay, and there is four guys waiting as one guy gets a ground ball. I hate that scenario because I, I want more interaction. I want more reps in a short amount of time. So I don't like people standing around, all right? I've got some ADD too. So like, I don't, I don't like people doing nothing. So what I, what I have those guys do that are waiting is get visual and verbal reps. So the four guys that are waiting behind, whatever happens with the guy that is catching the ball, they'll verbally call out what happened. So for example, on the short hop drill, when I hit the ground ball, the player that is catching the ball catches it, they'll call out if he caught a short hop or he caught a long hop. Okay, so it's like, short, all right? I hit another ground ball, guy catches it, short, hit another ground ball, guy catches it, but he doesn't catch the proper one and it's a long hop, the guys will yell out, long. So everybody knows like, hey, he didn't catch the right one. And he also knows, like, oh, I didn't catch the right one. But it keeps those guys locked in on visual verbal and they pay attention and they start training their eyes to read bounces on the hop instead of being in the back of the line doing nothing. Okay, so we do it with uh, the numbers too when I have them catch the second hop and the third hop. It's like when I hit the ball and let's say you're supposed to catch the second hop and I hit it and let's say the guy doesn't do good footwork, his footwork's off, and he ends up catching the third hop. All the guys will yell out three, so he knows, like, oh, I, didn't catch the, I didn't catch the second hop, I ended up catching the third hop. But more importantly, it's for the guys that are waiting in the back, it's for them to stay focused and concentrate, even though they're the person not going at that time, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I, I've never heard that before, but I love that. I mean, that's something that definitely makes sense just because, again, those guys aren't doing anything anyway, so you might as well keep them engaged. I, I really like that a lot. Now, kind of progressing into like more infield stuff, turning double plays. Now, remember when I was like several years ago when Cano was huge with the Yankees, you know, he looked so, yep. so smooth and, you know, had a little bit of swagger to him when he was turning those double plays. He was just like walk across second base. Now, yeah. don't see too many people doing that. How do you guys teach the, the double play? Yeah, we don't have too many people that have the talent of uh, Robinson Cano. That dude has an absolute <laughs> hand cannon, too, for an arm. That guy is unbelievable. He's one of the best guys that's turned the double play, and it ma he makes it look effortless, too, as well. Some things that we talk about with uh, turning the double play is when we approach the bag, we approach the bag with our left foot in the middle of the bag, okay, in an athletic position. So our shoulders are actually going to be parallel with the part of second base that is facing us too as well all right so i actually want my shoulders where my left shoulder if it had a laser on my left shoulder it would be pointing directly towards the first baseman so that's my position i'm in an athletic position my left foot is in the middle of the bag okay and then my roll of thumb from there 
is I'm going to take my right foot to wherever the ball is thrown. So if the ball is thrown to the inside part of the bag, I'm going to take my right foot to the inside part. Like if I have to take a step across the bag, I'm going to step across the bag, plant my right foot, catch, and then try to release the baseball as fast as I possibly can. Okay. If the ball is thrown to the outer outside or the um, furthest part of the bag away from first base, if the ball is thrown like towards my right shoulder, okay, my goal is to beat my right foot to the baseball. So I catch the ball in the center of my body. So my lower part of my leg is already planted so I can drive off that leg by the time I catch and I can release the baseball. Okay, so one thing we can break all of the internal cues down of how we're gonna turn a double play, all right? One of the best ways I'm all about external cues and getting guys uh, to learn through external cues. So one of the best ways that I've found to, to learn to teach your guys to turn the double play the fastest is Get a stopwatch, stand at second base, one at a time. Let's say you take all of your infielders, even your first baseman, take them all, okay? And you have, let's say, let's say you have eight infielders at second base. You have one guy that will feed them at second base. They'll feed them a baseball. And you put them on the stopwatch and you say, You're, hey, we're going to get pop times for you second baseman today. So when the ball hits your glove at second base, I'm going to start the clock. And when you throw it to first base and it hits the first baseman's mitt, I'm going to stop the clock. All right. And we're going to see who's the fastest. All right. And so basically I just put them in that competitive drill. And what you'll see is they, those guys, those guys will start making adjustments a lot faster versus me telling them internally about their mechanics of like, put your right foot here, put your left foot here, do this, do that. I like to use those internal cues to maybe help speed up them getting to a faster time but when you put them on the stopwatch they start figuring it out on their own so like i had one guy that was like a one five turn time okay so when it hit his glove to when he threw to first base it was like a one five my goal for my guys is to be a one three that's that's our overall goal all right because if we can turn it at a one three that's going to be some average time but how I broke it down was this. If you think about uh, an average runner, okay, average runner in college running to first base, it's going to be about a 4-3 time, okay? So if I can turn a double play and get him out at first base, if when he hits the ground ball and let's say he hits it to the shortstop, if the shortstop can catch the ball and get it to second base within three seconds and my second baseman has a turn time of 1-3, we're going to throw that guy out. So usually the shortstop catching the ball and getting it to the second baseman at three seconds is a very average time. And then that one, three turn time is an average time. So if we can get those two in line, all right, we're going to throw out majority of runners in college baseball. And you can change those times if you want. But the fastest turn time I ever had was a guy that turned it at a one, one, eight, which is really fast. But I've had guys from a development standpoint, I've had guys that are one five turn times and I just put them on the stopwatch and they start hearing like everybody else being like one twos, one two fives, one threes. And they're like, crap, I'm, I'm not fast enough. I need to get better. And they know if they're going to play second base for us, you got to be one of the best turn time guys on the team. If your turn time isn't very good, you're not playing second base for us. 
because double plays are very important on the infield to get out of an inning. So uh, we put that on a huge priority of you got to be one of the best turn time guys in order to play second base at South Mountain. So that's been the best thing. Throw them on a stopwatch and say, hey, who can be the fastest? And what you'll see is those guys will start figuring out how to transition their hands better. You'll start seeing the footwork be a lot less. And what I mean by that is when you start doing double plays and usually guys that are like 1-5 or 1-6 turn times, when, when they go to turn, their feet come really high off the ground. So like they'll have big, long steps in, when they go like catch right, left, throw. All right, when they're they're turning and pivoting, their their feet come off the ground pretty high, or their movement of their feet is long. And when they start turning it really quick, it's just like up down really quick. There's not very much air underneath their feet. It's like really quick, boom boom, and the ball is out. That will start happening when you start putting them on the stopwatch. So that's one of the that's that's the best drill I can I can tell anybody to do. Because those guys love to compete. So when they hear they're not the fastest guy, it puts them in line with, oh, crap, I need to get better. The in- internal, external explanation you had there, just it makes tons of, a ton of sense. And it was funny because actually when you were describing like where to put your exact foot and like things like that, I was trying to envision it as well. And then once you just said, like, hey, like, we're going to get the stopwatch out and you're going to have to just like basically compete against that, I was like, okay, that would – I actually kind of like – had like a sigh of relief be like okay i don't have to like think about all these like little things it's just like i just got to get the job done so i can only imagine how easy it is when you're explaining that to one of your players too now when you're after they make that throw do you like have them practice jumping or do you ever have runners like purposely slide in so they have to work on that too yeah we do a little bit. Sometimes they do it anyway because they like to be – I think good infielders, they like to have a little bit of flair anyway and have an imagination. But, yeah, we'll do that sometimes uh, where we might have to jump up and over a, a runner. Maybe we'll roll a basketball or uh, a med ball at them. So they got to work around that med ball. So if I'm in the baseline, I'll roll that ball. Those are some things that you can do with that. But to be honest with you – if your footwork's good and the rule now is they is the runner has to slide straight into the bag. So nowadays you don't have to jump up and over the runner as much anymore. You know, you really just know you gotta know how to work around the bag. It doesn't happen as often as it used to, where kind of back in the day where we used to love to take middle infielders out on double play balls. It doesn't happen as much. So it's not like a high emphasis on priority of teaching that, but guys do it anyway just because it's kind of a flary thing. It's they're using their imagination and it's kind of fun. So we'll do it a little bit, but it's not a massive priority for us because of the rule, the new rule now. You have to sh- slide straight into the bag. Yeah, the middle infielder, middle infielders are kind of like cornerbacks in a sense. they got to have a little bit of a little swagger, a little flair. I like that. Now, do you guys ever use any machines? Because I remember when I was at the ABCA, a lot now is because we can measure it, right? You can measure and see what kind of spins coming off the ball and, and things like that. And so more coaches and defensively are using machines, um, especially in the infield, um, if they have them. Like, do you guys ever uh, use machines and how do you use them? To be honest with you, we don't use them a whole lot on our infield. We have, well, we have three machines. We had one junior hack attack. We had two go down. So anyway, like we had two machines break. So that kind of put us behind. But usually we don't because our outfielders are using it and our infield or our uh, catchers 
are using those machines every day in position D. I like machines for infielders, but I have it's me and another guy. It's me and another guy that hit um, that work with our infielders. Another one of our assistants, Daniel Padilla. So we bang fungos all the time for us. And we'll do soft toss to each other fungos. I, I like that to kind of look at the body movement of what the hitter's going to do and adjust to what, you know, the levers of the arm are, how they're moving to adjust towards um, that first step and anticipating and so on and so forth. I like, I like the machines. I just don't use them as much for us because we have two fungo guys and our outfielder, our outfielders and our catchers use them more than we do. So I just kind of, I let them, I let them use those, those things. And I like hitting fungo anyway. So I think the biggest thing when you're talking about trying to change spin, this is what we do. I try to get our guys out of the comfort zone. And I think the best way to change spin, so if you use beat up baseball, so I don't throw away any of our old baseballs. I have two big trash cans of baseballs that have their seams torn off of them. I call them dogs, dog toys. But they're also, I call them game-like baseballs. So I'm like, well, you guys go get the bucket of game baseball. So when our infielders have to go get that bucket of game baseballs, they know that is the ones that are ripped up. The seams are gone. The leather's flying off of them. And the reason why I call them game balls is because I think they recreate the spin of baseballs. And the it creates an environment that's unpredictable. So it creates that unpredictable environment that I think you need to develop as an infielder. And uh, I'll hit those in our parking lot where it's just dirt and, and I'll go in into the desert. We've got some desert area next to our field. Like I'll just go there, it's got rocks in it and I'll hit these tore up baseballs. So you wanna talk about recreating different types of spin that you're not prepared for. That's one of the best ways to do that. And I actually took that from my high school coach in high school because we always worked on the field. We had one of the best fields playing surface wise um, in high school baseball in Oklahoma. and. He loved taking care of it and working on it. And when it would rain, we would go to the parking lot and our parking lot was the big rocks that were huge. And he would hit the bouncy balls to us, the the old yellow balls that are like dimple balls. I don't know if you remember those, but they're really bouncy. And he would hit those in the parking lot. And man, we would absolutely get torched. I mean, there was black eyes and <laughs> bruises coming out of that thing. But I always look at, I always look back at that experiences like, man, that taught me to learn to move my feet. I didn't know what bounce was coming. It changed every time. I, and if you get flat-footed and you don't move your feet, you're gonna get torched in that situation. So I, lo- I love that experience. So when you're talking about looking at spin, changing the environment, changing the speed, I think those tore-up baseballs and, and a parking lot are some of the, the best environments that you can put your guys in. That's a great example just because everyone's going to have access to those two things, right? Not everyone's going to have the the best machine possible or whatnot, but I I really do like that example just because, again, like anybody can do that. There's no reason uh, you can't get better from using those two. Now, the the last and, and seems like forgotten position of the infield sometimes is the first baseman. What are your thoughts on, on developing first basemen? Um, and they are really important. I mean, I've played with some first basemen who are really, really good and then not so good. And I, you you know, you know, kind of forget about them when they're good. Yeah. But you definitely don't forget when they're not good. So There's what, no doubt what, uh, about that. Yeah. What, what thoughts are do you have on developing first basemen? 
Yeah, you can definitely you can definitely tell when a infield a, a nucleus of an infield doesn't have a good first baseman because there's balls that should be caught and they don't get caught and then it changes the game completely. If you've got a, a first baseman that can really pick a ball out of the dirt or you can work really work all four corners of the bag and adjust to arm slots and work around the bag man those guys help you out so many times and in summer baseball like i i always look for a guy that's athletic that can work around the bag and usually at south mountain that's that's kind of how we recruit guys too is majority of the time at south mountain we've had guys that weren't first basemen and we've transitioned those guys over to first base you know right now the last two years we've had true first basemen that were really good defensively, so we hadn't really had to transition anybody. But, no, they're really important. I think you need to create routines for them every single day, too. I think those routines should implement a short hop progression every single day. We do those as infielders anyway, our infield routine. We play catch, and then we do what I call our daily vitamins, and that's our short hop progressions. We do those every single day. Every day you need that you need your daily vitamins to stay alive. So and we do those short hop progressions. So I think that's a big piece of those first basemen. I like getting our first baseman out of the first base position and have them go turn double plays, have them go shortstop, take ground balls, um, have them go to third base and throw across the infield and and figure out how to move a little bit better. The other thing is something that I think's been talked about more over the last year, year and a half is the spin of the baseball that guys on the left on the left side or the right side of the infield get, you know, like first basemen's a lot of times we forget what those guys what type of ground balls those guys are getting so in practice majority of us coaches are right-handed and we're hitting them right-handed ground balls and when we usually hit fungo they usually have backspin to them but in the game kai did this study created did this study and kai came and he, kai found out that majority of balls were hit with different spin, like left-handed hitter spin, and also top spin to the first baseman. But majority of times in practice, it's the opposite of that when we, we hit ground balls from a fungo, because it's usually a right-handed coach hitting a ground ball with backspin, right? And so when you get to the game and they're not fielding ground balls and you're mad at them and you're wondering why they're not good infielders, well, you haven't been preparing them for the type of ground ball that they're getting. So the guy that works with me, uh, Padilla, on infielders, with our infielders, he's left-handed. So I always have him hit all the ground balls to the left, the first baseman. Not all the time, not all the time, but majority of the time, he's going to be hitting ground balls to the first baseman. Yeah, so that's something that we do. I think it's really important. Um, the spin that we're looking at but also working on those short hops and then working drills that work all four corners of those bags yeah never thought uh you know needing a left-handed fungo hitter would be so vital and important but i've i've heard the similar that similar study um that kai you're mentioning you know about the spin and needing someone to hit some left-handed fungo so it's not just so it's more realistic to what they're going to get in the game now do you have them hold on runners differently at first base because i've seen you'll see some guys where they have their right foot right up against the bag when they're holding a runner on and i remember watching when i watched vado with the reds he doesn't have any of his feet on he just kind of has uh, both feet just in front of that corner of the base and then just slides kind of shuffles off if that makes sense 
Yep. Just so he can cover more ground. Now, I don't know if that's because you know, you're, it's, you're less likely to pick somebody in the big leagues versus college, and so he's not as worried about that or what that is. But what are your thoughts on where you like to have your guys kind of set up at first base? Yeah, I think it's two different philosophies. Uh, we definitely we do it like Votto does it, but I see big leaguers that do it with their foot against the bag too as well. I think it's just what preference and who the coach is and what philosophy they have. I like it because it's easier to work off the bag, and it, all you got to do is drop step a little bit in order to do a pickoff play. So it, it, it's not that big of a deal for me. I don't like being – for me, I don't like having our first baseman's foot against the bag because I think they can get stuck sometimes. The other thing is if there's a if there's a ball that's thrown up the baseline a little bit further, it's easier if you're like Votto to get off the bag and catch that ball. If you're stuck on the bag with your foot against it, it's harder – uh, to like go catch that bad throw, that Aaron throw, you know. So I like how Votto does it. That's how we teach our guys. We square up. If there's a pick play, then we drop step and tag. If um, when we're working off the bag, our rules for working off the bag, depending on if it's a right-handed hitter or a left-handed hitter, is one shuffle for a left-handed hitter and two shuffles for a right-handed hitter off of the bag. Um, because major, you know, majority of right-handers aren't going to hit it down the first baseline. They're going to hit it further towards a four-hole, and left-handers are going to be more apt to hit it down the line. So that's our like baseline rule of thumb. It's one shuffle off the bag with a left-handed hitter and two shuffles off the bag with a right-handed hitter to get us in better position. And then, you know, we'll we'll work off of, uh, let's say, a, let's say it's a left-handed hitter and he's more of like an oppo-type guy. All right, we'll work two shuffles off the bag on him. Like we'll make an adjustment from that. But from the foundation, majority of the times, two shuffles off the bag on a right-hander, one shuffle off the bag off of a left-hander. That's great insight. Just I like the one shuffle and then two shuffles. Um, I've never, I never actually even thought of it like that before. That's good. Uh, now, it's going into base running a little bit now. I know again, that's just something that you know you're really, really, really good at. Know a lot about. You know, I was always taught from a base runner's uh, standpoint, if you're just leading off at first base, you know, it's just right, left, shuffle, shuffle. Is that still the most efficient way, in your opinion, to get a lead off? I know some people do jump leads now. What are your thoughts? I think this is my this is our goal. We we try to get to 11 foot lead and get a good lead, good jump on a steal. That's our goal. Okay. So from that, working back when we're talking about pr- your primary lead, how to get there, I think you can do it multiple ways. I've heard so many different lead- ways of getting your primary lead. You can talk about getting three and a half shuffles. Okay, that's going to get you close to that 11-foot lead. You can go, what we did was go left, right, square up, and then go three shuffles. Okay, that's going to get you your left-foot lead. You have multiple, there's multiple ways that people teach the primary lead. I think more than anything, like I, I, I like to keep it as simple as possible. So three and a half shuffles is what I like to use from that terminology, because I think everybody can figure out how to get three and a half shuffles. I think a lot of people talk about proper ways to get off the base so they don't get picked off. Uh, really, if you just keep your head up, I don't think it really matters if you go right left, uh, right foot first or left foot first. I think you can create whatever you want for your philosophy and stick with that for your team. But 
does it matter? Is there a big difference on, on those? I don't think so. So whatever your terminology, anybody's terminology that you want, I think it's good. But I think to get to that left uh, 11 foot lead is really important. Our goal is to extend that lead, but that's our primary lead. Our goal is to extend that lead to 12 foot to steal. So uh, there's multiple ways to do that too. You can go, you can hop into that lead. You can go jump still, you can go lean still, you can go creep still. There's a bunch of different variations of movement. Um, Tallarico talks a lot about it in stillbases.com with his new school lead, which we do a lot of vault stills, momentum stills, where we are moving versus being static and moving from a stationary position. Uh, but from a primary lead, I think the easiest way is just get uh, three and a half shuffles. And then figure out where you are on the field. I think that's the main thing is I don't think we work primary leads enough to figure out where that 11 foot lead is, but that's where we want to get to majority of the time. And then we want to increase that lead. If you know, on certain variables, the pitchers pick moves, not good. The players fast enough, the player's reaction time is good enough. So he can extend that lead to get a better lead. But usually when you get to that 13 foot, 14 foot mark, that's where the danger zone is. So I think it's really the biggest thing is getting guys to try to find that 11 foot mark and then get them comfortable of understanding where they're at on the field. Um, something I like is guys to, you know, blindfold your guys and get them to get a primary lead. And then, you know, like if you have a tape measure down or you have cones down showing how far they're off, they should be able to get that primary lead blindfolded. So they understand the feel of getting that lead and they understand where they're at on the field, you know? So I think it's really important just to be able to understand where you're at and who you are, how fast you are, your reaction time, understand that, understand that picture. So I think those all dictate what that primary lead looks like and what we can extend that primary lead to. Going off of the primary lead, now once they actually steal – what are your thoughts on drop step? Now, I guess if they shuffle into it, it's not going to play as big of a, a role, you know, how they, um, if they drop step or not, once they start to run. But if they're just at a straight, like kind of just three shuffles, like you were saying before, maybe they have a little bit of movement. Do you like them like drop stepping to then go, or does it not even really matter that much? So I, I, you, I wanted to ask you this because you're a strength conditioning expert. So you uh, really know how the body's supposed to move most efficiently. No doubt. So, so going into some studies like the, the the old school saying on looking if we should drop step or not on that still is everybody used to argue all the time don't drop step don't drop step don't lose ground and really it's it's not that when you're talking about that movement with your right foot um, what your right foot is trying to do on that first move is get underneath your hip to propel propel you forward all right so it's part of the acceleration phase if you look at all videos of all sprinters, not just baseball you know, players that are stealing, you look at sprinters in general, uh, when they go to steal or they go to move, they go to sprint, they're trying to get uh, that foot underneath the hip to propel them forward. Basically, that aligns that shin angle. It gets a good shin angle to produce force into the ground to push you forward. So there's videos of Ricky doing it, Ricky Henderson. And on that first move, the foot's going to come back slightly, 
and it's going to get underneath the hip so it can push the body forward and put as much force into the ground. And that's what we want. So um, kind of the old school thought on that in a lot of ways is don't lose ground. Again, you go back to internal and external cues and you're talking about, you know, don't drop step. You've heard some people say that don't drop step. And really your body's going to figure out how to be as fast as possible if you put it on a stopwatch. So in the acceleration phase, everybody get 10 foot out, get 12 foot out all right, from where your player's starting, mark a line. Acceleration phase is somewhere like within the, that first 10 yards. So just do 10 yard sprints. We do those very often and try to be as fast as you possibly can in that 10 yard sprint and tell them their times and they're going to start figuring out what their body's doing. But what you'll see on majority of all those people is there will be a drop step. And that is to get your body in line to accelerate as fast as you possibly can forward. And your foot has to be underneath that hip with a good shin angle to press your body forward and put force on the ground. So, yeah, I definitely believe in that because that's what our body needs to do to move as fast as we possibly can. And I think another big part of uh, stealing bases specifically is sliding. And I know a lot of guys wear those, like that extra, like makes your hand like twice as long, that hand protector, whatever. I mean, you know what that thing is called, yeah. but I see Pancake. guys wear that. I call it pain. Yeah. Right. Are you okay with guys essentially sliding head first? Because I know a lot of injuries do happen when guys slide head first. Or do you prefer feet first or do you prefer, does it not really matter? Well, into first base, I don't like sliding at all. We actually we actually had one of our best players this year slide head first into first base and tore his thumb up. So definitely not a component of sliding head first into first base. For me, I think I love sliding head first. There's definitely some injuries that you can get. One of them is my thumb or my pinky. I've got a broke pink pinky from sliding head first when I was a freshman in college. So Jeez. people are watching video you can see like it's stuck right there like I can't I can't move it so uh, that was from sliding head first into second base and I caught the second baseman's cleat like there's definitely more injuries that can happen I think the pancake has helped in that scenario I think it's kind of how our body is developed too like I, you know I don't know the necessary anatomy of why guys like to slide head verse head first versus feet first but I think that has something to do with it I don't know because I've got guys that they'll only slide feet first like it I don't tell them they can do either one but just watching them and what they choose to do they'll only slide feet first and you got a lot of guys that love to slide head first you know so I don't know I think anatomy has to do something something with it um I should probably do like a research study on that to see but yeah, you know, I think we need to slide more, especially in today's world. I don't think we get outside enough. Like, there's not enough slip and slide going on. And, you know, I think if, if, if coaches have turf, I think it's very beneficial for them to uh, use that turf. You know, we're in Arizona, and, you know, we don't have any turf in Arizona. All the fields are rock hard because it's it's hot out here in so like if, if you're if we're sliding all the time in practice, like we're going to beat our guys up. So I don't like that scenario. So I've tried to create different ways so they can slide more without getting injured all the time. You know, we've we've used some some like sliding pads before. Um, but I, I think the easiest way is this first week, first week of the fall, first week of practices to keep it fun. 
get a slip and slide out there, put some water on that sucker, put some baby baby oil on that sucker, and <laughs> let your kids have fun. Head head first, feet first. I feel like that's how I really learned to slide, and you know it's fun for the guys. So that's what I, would, from a drill standpoint, that's what I would say. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. Let them have fun, and I think they're going to get a lot of practice on doing that while having fun. When you're at third base tagging up, one of the things that you'll see a lot sometimes is guys who will wait to the last second to tag up so they have some momentum. So they're not just, you know, have their foot on the base and then wait and then go. They kind of have a little bit of momentum so they're not static. I've seen that a couple times. I don't see that always all the time or really taught like that. Does that make sense or does that just get like your timing has to be too perfect in a sense to do to pull that off? So this is what we do at third base. After you get the secondary ball is put into play. As soon as the ball is put into the air, we go directly back. Okay. So we don't wait. We don't go back slowly. Our goal is to get directly back to the bag, but our head stays on the baseball. Okay. So we're going to get back early and then we're going to read the outfielder on his positioning and where the ball is. Okay. We're going to set our foot up in a sprinting position. So we, we put our, like, if you've got that one cleat on your toe, like on the end of your toe, we're going to put that cleat in the ground, all right, and we're going to get ready to push directly off the base. And what we'll do is we try to time, we try to get in rhythm with the ball descending in the air into the outfielder's glove, all right? So when the ball is coming down, we're actually moving our body down in rhythm with the ball entering the outfielder's glove to give us momentum and timing. So I don't like being stagnant. I like moving. I like rhythm. I like timing. So we get to the bag early and then we get in rhythm with the ball coming down. And so we start moving down, basically getting into our legs to push ourselves off of the bag as soon as the ball is caught. That's kind of how we teach it. That's awesome, man. Uh this has been great. Uh, I've learned so much from, you know, doing this podcast with you and, you know, learning about more about base running and, and infield play, which is something that, you know, I'm constantly uh, learning more about and, and becoming more comfortable with. Are there any resources out there that you would recommend to people out there uh, who are listening who may want just to continue to learn like yourself? Yeah. I mean, anybody can reach out to me if you want to talk shop. I'll talk shop to anybody, little league coach, high school coach, you know, anybody that, you know, wants to ask questions and just talk shop. I would love to do it. You can follow me on Twitter at Gillum 13. You can give me a phone call if you want to 602-370-7649. Shoot me a text and we'll figure out a time that we can talk. My email is on the South Mountain website or the Savannah Bananas website. It's a really long email, so I won't say it on the podcast. You can find it there on those websites. It's easier to copy and paste that sucker. Yeah, and then just ABCA um, has a lot of videos. I spoke in 2016 on the Expo stage about our growth toolbox, a life skills course that we do at South Mountain. Spoke to a lot of coaches about that program, and then I've got... Two years ago in Dallas, I spoke on the Greenlight Special, our base running system that we do at South Mountain. And that video is available on the ABCA website as well. But, you know, just look at all the opportunities. We're in an, you know, even though we're quarantined right now and it's a, it's a, you know, not an awesome time because we're not able to play baseball. 
Um, I think we're making the most of it. And there's a lot of podcasts, your podcast. There's a handful of other awesome baseball podcasts that are out there with people that are a lot smarter than me on it. And you can gain information from those guys. But YouTube, um, I've got a couple links of some of the things that we do on YouTube, either um, the Savannah and Bananas page or just my personal page on YouTube. But there's a lot of things. If you're looking, just search. Um, Technology is awesome for us and our, our ways of communication right now with all these Zoom meetings and podcasts have been uh, beneficial for me. So I know they can be for everybody else, too. Awesome, man. Yeah, we'll make sure to put uh, put your Twitter handle um, in the show notes page. And um, I won't put your phone number on the show notes page either just because I don't want, you know, random people calling you. But we'll put the Twitter Twitter handle and maybe we can get that YouTube uh, channel up there as well. So, again, man, really appreciate your time. I mean, it was just it's great to connect with you again, man. Yeah, man. Hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and hope it was worth it for everybody. And everybody took a, a little nugget or two. But man, you're, you're the man. Awesome what you're doing. Pumped you in Pro Bowl and got this opportunity. And uh, yeah, man, anytime you want to talk shop, let's do it again. Appreciate it.